Well, good morning. I'd also like to welcome you to Arlington Countryside Church. My name's Chris Majeski. I'm the family pastor here. So glad you chose to join with us, whether you're in person or you're online. We're glad you're with us. Uh, so it's my privilege to bring to you the message from God's Word, uh, to, to share with you what I've been studying this week and what God's placed on my heart this week. Um, and, and, and I had an experience, this happens often uh, when I'm preparing a message. Uh, God keeps me humble. He reminds me that uh, I need this as well. Uh, instead, of, instead of the temptation of, hey, you guys go do this, it was a reminder of, hey, Chris, this is about you as well. Uh, and so I, I want to share that story with you to start. Um, and so, uh, so, so this, have you ever been so convinced convinced that you were right, only to find out that you were actually very wrong. Can you relate to this? Uh, and maybe, you've, maybe you stuck your foot in your mouth, or maybe it was just this embarrassing moment. Uh, I had those moments this week. I had many of those moments this week, unfortunately. Uh, but, uh, but what happened even this morning? Uh, so I already had this illustration set and planned. This is the start of it. And, and I was getting uh, my headset. If you notice this little microphone that comes down on the left side of my face here, uh, I went to the tech booth to get the, the headset, and I was like, hey, guys, can we? something's wrong. This is supposed to be on the right side. Uh, like, it, it's, do we switch this somehow? They're like, no, no, it's on the left side. It's like, no, I swear, it's always on the right side. What's going on here? I'm still not convinced they're not pulling a trick on me. But, uh, but anyway, but, um, but, uh, but no, they're like, no, it belongs on the left side. But I was convinced, all right? Uh, but the, the story I wanted to share with you, the illustration, this is a little bit more embarrassing than uh, just not remembering where the microphone is. Um, I lead, I lead a, 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 a men's small group that meets on Zoom on Tuesday nights. Uh, and uh, so I was, I was preparing for that meeting, and, uh, and this little thing right here was the problem. Uh, so, so I don't know about you guys, does, do, do headphones cause issues in your home? Like they're not where they're supposed to be, or somebody took them, or something like that? Or, or, uh, so I have wireless earbuds, uh, and that's what I typically use. Um, but those things are battery-powered, and those things can die, or something can go wrong with the Bluetooth connection. So I have a backup. This is my backup, the wired ones. This is my backup, and this belongs in my bag. I have a gray messenger bag that my, my earbuds are always there. That's my backup is always in that bag. There's a special pouch they belong in. I mean, it, it's, it's where they're always at. And so I'm having this meeting on Tuesday, and my wireless earbuds start to cause a problem. And uh, they're, they're cutting in and out, and I'm like, oh, this is a problem. We're just getting started. Uh, let me reach into my bag and get my backup. So I go reach in, and it's not there. And I start digging around the bag. Maybe it's in the wrong pouch. It's not there. It's not there. And then I did the thing, this thing. Uh, this is the thing that I'm embarrassed about. The thing I did on, in the call, I told the men in the small group, I said, well, my backup headphones aren't in my bag. Uh, my kids probably took them and used them. My children probably took them and used them. Uh, and so I blamed them. I said, that's what, that's what happened here. Uh, and, and I was convinced that's what happened because I always put my earbuds in that pouch. That's where they belong. Uh, and so I, I said, I'm, I'm going to need to take a minute to go get this sorted out. Um, and so, uh, so, so I got my wife involved. Lisa, can you help me find my, my, my backup headphones? And we're looking through the house. We're looking everywhere. She can't find them. She's looking through her purse to see if maybe she took them. She's asking the kids. Uh, we're all over the place, and, 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 and the answers are the, the kids didn't take it. She can't find it anywhere. And I'm like, well, somebody's not telling the truth here. I'm sure somebody took the headphones until I went to the cabinet where I keep my wallet and keys and a shelf where nobody, none of the kids can reach. And right as I opened that cabinet, there were my headphones sitting right there. And I had to go back to that call and that men's, that men's small group and say, so men, I blamed my children when in fact it was my own doing that my headphones weren't there. 
I was so convinced, though. I was so convinced it's not my fault, it's somebody else's fault. I was so convinced I knew what the problem was, and I knew what the answer was. The solution was one of the, the kids has to fess up to it, or, or, or my wife took them, or you know, something like that, that somebody took them out of there. I had tunnel vision. Tunnel vision, to, I knew what the problem was, I knew what the answer was, and I was not open to the new information that was being presented to me. The new information was the children saying, no, it wasn't us, I didn't take it. And, 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 and the, the new information was, we've looked everywhere and it's not here. Perhaps there's, there's something else that's happened here and there was something else. I misplaced them. So if you can relate to that idea of being so convinced that you're right, but then actually finding out you were wrong, uh, I think John, the passage we're looking at in John, I think it has something to communicate to you. I think it has something to tell each of us. And so let's look at John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. This is, uh, we're looking at uh, the testimony of John the Baptist, uh, not the writer of the Gospel John, uh, that's, that's the, the disciple of Jesus, uh, but this is John the Baptist, a different character. But um, let's go ahead and read uh, verses 19 through 34. I'll read that. This was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders sent priests and temple assistants from Jerusalem to ask John, who are you? He came right out and said, I am not the Messiah. Well, then who are you, they asked. Are you Elijah? No, he replied. Are you the prophet we are expecting? No. Then who are you? We need an answer for those who sent us. What do you have to say about yourself? John replied in the words of the prophet Isaiah, I am a voice shouting in the wilderness, clear the way for the Lord's coming. Then the Pharisees who had been sent asked him, if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet, what right do you have to baptize? John told them, I baptize with water, but right here in the crowd is someone you do not recognize. Though his ministry follows mine, I am not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandal. This encounter took place in Bethany, an area east of the Jordan River, where John was baptizing. Verse 29, continuing on. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one I was talking about when I said, A man is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. I did not recognize him as the Messiah, but I have been baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel then John testified, I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven and resting upon him. I didn't know he was the one, but when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I saw this happen to Jesus, so I testify that he is the chosen one of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And as we have gathered here to worship, we have done that through song, and we've done that through giving, and we've done that. We will do that later through communion. We're doing it right now through look, engaging with your word. Would you open our hearts and minds? Would you make our hearts receptive to what you have for us? And would you help us to take steps to be closer to Jesus? In Jesus' name, amen. So here we have this story of John. Uh, Dave introduced us to him last week. We know a little bit about John. We're going to continue to explore uh, this week and next some more, a little bit more about him. Uh, but, uh, but John, this, this interaction with Jesus here, this interaction with these scholars, uh, scholar, biblical scholars believe that this interaction took place after Jesus' baptism and after his temptation in the desert, in, in, the, in the wilderness, so 40 days. So if you know that story, 
He was baptized. Uh, John talks a little bit about what he saw at Jesus' baptism. And then Jesus went out into the wilderness for 40 days. There he was tempted uh, and overcame that temptation. And now this is where uh, this, the, this encounter is after that. So these men that come to, uh, to, to talk to John, this is taking place at that time period. Um, and there's really three parts to this passage that I see. One is, is uh, John's interrogation. These guys come asking who he is. They have some pretty direct questions about who he is, and they want answers. There's an interrogation here. Uh, and then there's John's testimony. He talks about himself, but really he talks about Jesus. His testimony is, as they ask him to talk about himself, he really just points to Jesus. Uh, and, so, uh, and then the third thing is, 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 what does this all teach us? What is, John, uh, what is the gospel writer John trying to teach us from this? And, and, and I, I think he has something to tell us about what it means to follow Jesus. And that's the third part that we'll look at. But notice the beginning of this passage, verse 19, it says, priests and temple assistants from Jerusalem, uh, they they came to to question John. Uh, Priests and temple assistants from Jerusalem. This really represents the the religious power center uh, of Judaism at the time. Uh, And this this group uh, that's in power in in the temple here, these leaders, they're the ones who end up being the group that's antagonistic towards Jesus. Uh, they're actually very, uh, uh, they're, 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 they're suspicious of John. They don't like what, they, what they're hearing about him. Um, but this group then becomes suspicious of Jesus. And as Jesus' ministry continues, they become increasingly dissatisfied with him and increase their efforts and ultimately are the ones, efforts to stop him, and ultimately are the ones who scheme to have him put to death. And so I think it's important for us to understand that because this is talking about a specific group of people who are very powerful, but it wasn't all Jewish people who were, who were suspicious, of, suspicious of Jesus. In fact, many Jewish people, perhaps the majority of them, were very open and receptive to Jesus. In fact, his disciples were all Jewish men. Uh, and, and then, and then the, wider circle, the wider circle of his, of his followers, there was men and women, men, plenty of men and women who were Jewish. The, there was lots of people who were interested in Jesus and receptive to him. There was a small group, but very powerful group, who was very antagonistic towards him. And they're the group that really is here questioning John. And, and, and their interaction with John is really, is really interesting to me because John gives them very short answers. Now, they've made this journey from Jerusalem out to see him, and they have a task in hand to find out about him. I would suspect that if they're that interested in finding out about him, they would press in for more understanding and deeper questioning. But it suffices them that John gives them one-word answers. So we have recorded here. The interaction that John records for us uh, between John the Baptist and, and, and these guys is, is just this really simple, simple interaction. And I want to suggest to you that it, it points to the fact that these men were not really interested in what John had to say. They'd already made up their minds about who he was. They were closed-minded. They had tunnel vision about it. They had decided what the answers were already. This was a formality. Maybe John will say something that they could then use to discredit him. Or maybe, or just maybe, uh, John will, 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 will surprise them and, and, and he'll, he'll fit the, 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 the boxes, the, 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 the you know, kind of box they had for uh, who he should be, right? But, but John doesn't do that. Uh, so it's interesting. We see this, this group that's suspicious and skeptical and, and close-minded as they interact with him. And so let's look at that interrogation. We see that uh, the first thing that they explore is Messiah. And they actually don't ask him, is he the Messiah? John uh, suspects what they're, cons- what they're thinking about, what they're interested in, and he offers it. He just says, hey, he leads with it. I'm not the Messiah. 
And so to understand this concept of Messiah, I think it's, it's important for us. Uh, the Messiah, sometimes translated the Christ, uh, it, it's God's chosen one, God's uh, anointed one. That, that word anointing meaning, meaning special blessing and power resting on him. This is somebody who would be greater than the prophets. It would be the one who would be empowered by God to save God's people. Isaiah 42.1 is one place. There's many places in the Old Testament talk about it, but this is one place that talks about it. It says this, Look at my servant whom I strengthen. He is my chosen one who pleases me. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. So this is the concept of the Messiah. He's the chosen one. He's God's servant, and God will be with him. He'll strengthen him. Uh, and he'll put his spirit on him, and he's going to do this, bring justice to the nations. That's, that's a concept, a significant concept here. And so the, the idea in this time period, the, the Messiah was, the, the hope of the Messiah was widespread. They were anticipating it. They were looking for it, hoping for it. And in fact, several people had, had come before in, this, in the recent history of this, this time period. Several people had come claiming they were the Messiah, falsely. They had, they had gathered a small following and then they had been discredited or, or faded and fizzled out. And so there had been some false messiahs who appeared and, and, and there, was, there was this deep interest to, to when is the messiah coming? This longing for this to happen. And that makes sense to me because at this point, the Jewish people had been under foreign occupation for, for more than 300 years. First by the Greeks and then by the Romans. More than 300 years, they had outside foreign powers ruling over them, and they were not able to rule themselves. And in addition to that, it had been 400 years since God had spoken through the prophets. We have at the end of the Old Testament with, the, with Malachi, we have a final prophecy about the coming Messiah, and then we have 400 years before God speaks again. And so in this period of waiting, the Jewish idea of the Messiah had, was shaped it was shaped as they waited and longed for this. And, 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 and we add into that, some of the prophecies about the Messiah say that it would be someone like Moses. Someone like Moses. Well, what did Moses do? Well, he led the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt. They were in slavery in Egypt, and he led them out of that. And so if it's going to be like Moses, and they're under this foreign occupation, well, surely the Messiah would be, would be political and lead them from this, this oppression of the Romans at this time. This is their thinking. This is what's going on. So it makes sense that they would end up with that. But they became so convinced of it that they had tunnel vision and weren't able to see that the Messiah was actually very different than what they were expecting. There's political overtones here, but it does not, it does not mean, uh, it does not mean that, that, that that's what was going to happen with the Messiah. They had misread into that. And the, the, the overthrowing, the deliverance that was going to happen, the Messiah would be a spiritual deliverer who would overcome the, the, the greater need of all humanity, and that's our spiritual problem, not our physical or, or political problem. And so John is up front to say that that's not who he is. He is not the Messiah. He knows his role. And they move on and they ask him if he's Elijah. Uh, Elijah is one of the most well-known prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, also an interesting character. There's some, some fun stories about him. But, but what I want to point out here is Elijah was taken up, to, uh, taken up to heaven, taken from earth without dying. It's one of the, the few people in the Old Testament we have, we, we have record of that happening, what it tells us happened. In 2 Kings 2, it says that he was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind, just kind of a, swept up into heaven. And so because he was taken up without dying, it was speculated, it was believed by Jewish scholars that he would come back to earth. 
he would return. Malachi 4.5 says, Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. And so this is after Elijah has been taken up to heaven and it's saying, look, he's going to return. I'm sending you the prophet Elijah before the day of the Lord arrives. And so this is the idea of the forerunner to the Messiah, right? The one who's going to pave the way and clear the path, that voice in the wilderness that John quotes. And so, uh, so, so, this, uh, so John's answer, though, is a little bit perplexing because they ask him if he's Elijah and he says no. And he says, no, I'm not Elijah. But yet, what we see in Scripture is that it was prophesied that John would be like Elijah. And actually, Jesus has something to say about him in equating him with Elijah. So let's look at those. Uh, Luke 1, 17. This is, uh, so John's birth was, was a miracle. Uh, his parents were, were old, uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah, they were old, and Elizabeth was, was, uh, was unable to have children, and, and God miraculously intervenes, and, and, uh, and she's, and she's going to have a child. And, and an angel appears to Zechariah, to John's father, and he says this about John. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. So spoken of John while he's in the womb, the angel says that he will be a man in the spirit, with the spirit and power of Elijah, and he will prepare the way of the coming of the Lord. So no doubt from the moment he was conceived, John was special, and God had chosen him for a very special task. But notice those words, it says the spirit and power of Elijah, the spirit and power and so now, at this time period, like I said, they, they, had, they had assumed Elijah, physically Elijah, would come back. But here it tells us that John's going to be in the spirit and power of Elijah. And here's what Jesus has to say about him. I tell you the truth, of all who have ever lived, this is Matthew 11, uh, verses 11 through 15, of all who have ever lived, no one is greater than John the Baptist. <clears throat> Yet even the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. And from the time John the Baptist began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent people are attacking it. For before John came, all the prophets and the law of Moses looked forward to the present time. And if you are willing to accept what I say, he is Elijah, the one the prophets said would come. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. And so I'm, I'm, I'm demonstrating here, we see what Jesus says about him, that he is Elijah, right? I'm demonstrating for you a very important Bible, Bible study technique. When the Bible says something seems to contradict, we let the Bible interpret the Bible. We, go to, we look at the other passages. And so John's saying he's not Elijah. Well, that's interesting because there's, Jesus says that he was, and it was prophesied about John that he would be in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So what is this communicating as we look at this, as we study this more? What it tells us is that he was not physically Elijah, but he fulfilled the role of Elijah. He's Elijah part two, right? He's, he's, not, he's not Elijah returned. He is carrying on the legacy of Elijah, carrying on the ministry of Elijah, carrying on what Elijah was doing. And so John's correct in answering. Their narrow-minded, tunnel-vision view of what, of what was happening is physically Elijah would return. He's saying, no, that's not me. I'm not Elijah. I'm John. But he actually is in the spirit and power of Elijah. They missed it, though, because they were so convinced that they were right. The third thing, then they ask, are you the prophet? The prophet. This one's a bit more obscure. Uh, so this is likely a reference to Deuteronomy 18.15. Uh, Moses, it says this, Moses continued, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. 
I mentioned how the, the Messiah would be like Moses, right? Uh, so this is Moses saying, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like me. And so uh, Jewish scholars seem to be split on this one at the time period. Uh, some believe that this passage, this Deuteronomy 18, was referring to the Messiah and that he would be like Moses and he would, he would you know, teach, you know, give the law and teach God's people, but he would deliver them from foreign oppression. They believed the, the, that, that aspect of it, uh, that there's both of those. Uh, and then some believe that it was referring to another forerunner, kind of like John the Baptist was a forerunner, that this is another prophet who will prepare the way. Uh, or perhaps it was just talking about John the Baptist, or, or you know, uh, the role of John the Baptist, the forerunner. Uh, and so there, there, there was differing views here. There was conflicting ideas here. But John doesn't wade in to clear any of that up. He actually doesn't seem any interested at all in clearing that up. He just says that's not who he is. So really, their, their, their third question here, the prophet, uh, likely, scholars believe likely, that passage is referring to the Messiah. And so it's really, are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the Messiah? His, are there questions? Is really what, 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 what it amounts to. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, John's clearing up here. Uh, that's not who he is. And so at this point, the priests and temple assistants are really frustrated. And, and, and they're questioning, now they question about his ministry. So if you're not any of those people, what right do you have to baptize is where they go. Uh, and so he begins then to tell about himself. And, and in John's testimony, uh, he, he, he shows, uh, he talks about how he's the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way. And he talks about how he's baptizing with water. And then he points to Jesus. He points to Jesus. So he doesn't really talk about himself. He really talks more about Jesus. But in his testimony, we see that he's reminding people of the need to repent. Reminding people of the need to repent. Uh, so Dave introduced us to John the Baptist last week. And he taught us about how he was a pretty unique guy. Uh, we talked a little bit about that. He was definitely not mainstream. A very, a very different kind of guy. Living out in the wilderness. Uh, he, uh, he, did, he didn't teach at the temple or rub shoulders with the, with the religious leaders of the day. Uh, and he actually, he really, his message ruffled feathers. He really stirred up uh, the Jewish religious establishment. Um, you know, he had the audacity to tell them that, he had the audacity to tell them they need to repent. That was a message that was reserved for non-Jews. People who were outside of the Jewish faith, they were doing the wrong thing, worshiping the wrong God. They needed to repent. Repent turn away, means turn away from your sin and turn to God. They needed to do that. And how dare John say that, the, that even the Jewish people needed to repent? That was something that was not normally spoken, not normally, not normally taught. And so here he is doing that, and then, he says, then he's telling people that they need to be baptized. Again, that was something that was primarily reserved for people who were outside of the faith, who converted to Judaism. They would be baptized. But those who were already Jews, they needed to be baptized? He, he's really ruffling feathers here. John's message was that God's judgment was coming, and they needed to repent. They needed to turn from their sins and prepare their hearts for the coming of the Lord. And so it's a reminder to us that repentance it's a necessary part of our spiritual life. That it's a, it's a, it's a key quality of, of, of following Jesus is to, is to be, be open and, 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 and responsive to God, what he's revealing to us, and say, yeah, agree with him about our sin. Agree with him about the, the things going on in our lives that are, are displeasing to him. And so repentance isn't a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. And so it is, a th it's something we do, it's a, it's a part of the, the first step of our faith journey is to agree with God about our sin and turn to him for salvation. But it's an ongoing part of our faith. It's a daily practice of recognizing our sin and turning to God.
John's testimony also tells us that Jesus is greater that Jesus is greater. He points to Jesus as so much greater than him, and he uses this, this interesting illustration. He says, I'm not fit to untie the straps of his sandals. That's a job that would have been reserved for slaves. And so here we have John the Baptist, a prophet, a man who hears from God, who's delivering God's message to people, who's got this, this ministry that's actually, that's actually gaining, gaining a lot of attention, that, so much so that the people in Jerusalem are sending people to check it out. And John... John's a pretty big deal, but yet he points to Jesus as so much greater. And that phrase, that Jesus is greater, it's a powerful phrase that I've hung on to in my life. And perhaps you're here today, and that's a phrase that you might need to grab hold of for yourself. In the, t- in the moments when my circumstances seem so overwhelming, it's important for me to remember that Jesus is greater. Or when, when I, I'm, I'm so, uh, when I'm so overcome with, with, my, with, with my emotions or so down in the depths of despair and, and, and I think there's no way out and hope does not seem possible, Jesus is greater. Or when I find myself in a pattern of sin that I'm struggling to get free from, to struggling to break out of, Jesus is greater. And I could go on and on and on. But John understood the power of Jesus, the magnificence of Jesus. I believe that our lives, our spiritual lives, might be enhanced, might be so much better if we remembered just how great he is, who it is that we're serving, who it is that we're connected to. Jesus is greater. John's testimony also is that Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. He's the one you've been waiting for. He points to Jesus, calling him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, this is an interesting choice of words here. That's a common phrase that we use now. The lamb of God who takes away the lamb of God for one. A lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But at this point, that wasn't very common for them to use this this kind of language, referring to a person in particular, right? But it wasn't very common to just talk about this. The, the lamb of God, right? Uh, they talked about lambs, and they were used in sacrifices. But the Lamb of God, that was not a normal phrase for to be used. Uh, so immediately, John's, uh, John, the gospel writer John here, is, is illicit. He's, he's calling that, to te- uh, records that detail to call our attention to the fact that Jesus is ultimately going to die for us. He's pointing ahead. He's foreshadowing here. Uh, now, these are the words of John the Baptist that he spoke, but he, he takes careful attention to record that, this, this idea that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And in and, and, and that imagery, it would have immediately called the people in that day, that, as they hear this, it would have immediately called to mind the, the, the Passover feast. And if you know the, the story of Passover, uh, when, the, when um, Israelites were in captivity in Egypt, they were in slavery in Egypt, God told them to, to take a lamb and to slaughter that lamb. And they, they were to eat that as their meal, but they were to take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost of their house. And that night, as the angel of death came into Egypt, it would pass over that house, seeing that the lamb had paid with its life, and so a person of that family was not necess- did not need to die, that the, that animal had died in its place. And so Jesus is that Passover lamb here that he's talking about, that, that God, uh, when, when, when we are judged, that God says, Jesus died in your place, you don't have, your, 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 your sin has been paid for. And so John is using that idea here, but notice he says that takes away the sin of the world. The sin of the world. 
And so the gospel writer John, again, is, is bringing that, that detail to our attention to let us see that Jesus is for everyone, not just for the Jewish people. He didn't come to deliver the Jewish people from political oppression. He had a far different purpose. He came to deliver us all from spiritual oppression, to lay down his life in place of ours, to free us from the power of sin, and to offer us forgiveness and restoration with God. And so he goes, he's pointing to the fact that Jesus is, is for all people. And, and then John goes on to describe his baptism and how God revealed who Jesus is. So to those who would listen, John is clearly stating who Jesus is. But to those who had their minds made up, his words were easily dismissed. And I think it's interesting to note that some of John's disciples were Jesus' first disciples. They heard what John had to say, and they went to check out Jesus. And so John illustrates for us here about following Jesus some things. He shows us that Jesus' followers are humble. They're humble. John 1, 26 and 27, John told them, I baptize with water, but right here in the crowd is someone you do not recognize. Though his ministry follows mine, I am not even to, worthy to, un, to be a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. So we've already talked about that imagery there. This, this hum, you see the humility in his words. I mean, John is a big deal, but he chooses to make Jesus a bigger deal. In fact, a little later in John's gospel, Jesus' ministry has taken off. And John is overjoyed to hear that Jesus' ministry has begun to take off. He's overjoyed by that. And there's a shift that has taken place that fewer and fewer people are going to John the Baptist and his disciples, and, and the, all these people are going to Jesus. And John's response to that is, that's great. That's exactly what's supposed to happen. And he uses this language. He says, I'm like the, I'm like the best man standing at the altar, just happy for the groom. Jesus is the groom. This is his moment. This is his thing. I'm just here to witness it, and I am so glad that that's happening. And then he says these famous words. He says, he, speaking of Jesus, must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. So John beautifully illustrates that Jesus is the star of the story, and we're supporting characters. So followers of Jesus are humble. Any good that is happening in our life should point to Jesus. He's the star of the story. He also illustrates that followers of Jesus are open. They're receptive. They're, they're willing to learn. They're teachable. He's this guy who hears from God and speaks to God's people. He has deep understanding of the scriptures, and God's with him in a special way. And yet, he doesn't claim to have it all figured out. Now, he's bold, and he stands for truth. And yet, he remains open. It is possible to do both. It is possible to, to speak clearly and honestly and, and, and boldly about what we do believe to be true and yet to remain open that there might be things that we don't know or there might be things that God wants, us, wants to teach us yet. And we see this in John uh, 1, 32 and 34. Then John testified, I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven and resting upon him. And this is the key in verse 33. I didn't know he was the one. But when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I saw this happen to Jesus, so I testify that he is the chosen one of God. Notice those words. I didn't know he was the one. John had to learn that Jesus was the Messiah. He didn't have it all figured out. He had to be open and receptive to God and what God was teaching him and what God was revealing him. The, the language here indicates that he didn't innately know. 
He wasn't born knowing, which is true for all of us. None of us are born knowing who Jesus is. We have to have it revealed to us. We have to encounter him to come to know him. It's only by God's revelation that, God, that John came to know who Jesus is, and it's only by God revealing it to us that we can come to know Jesus as well. John had a significant encounter with Jesus, and so many other people did. And so many people had their encounter with Jesus, and they left ignoring what he had to say or undecided about what he had to say. But John... John encountered Jesus, and he was open to what God had to teach him. And more so than that, more so than that, he was obedient. He was responsive. He shows us that true followers of Jesus are, are obedient. Not only was John open to what God had to teach him, teach him, he followed through on it. He testified that Jesus is the Messiah. He didn't just sit with that understanding for himself. He then told others and pointed them to, pointed them to Jesus as well. John 1.29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That word look can be translated behold. Behold, it's a command. It's directing their attention to Jesus, the one who is greater, the one who they've been waiting for. And so John doesn't cling to his status and his ministry. At this moment, he is obedient. His obedience, in his obedience, he begins to fade into the background and give the spotlight to Jesus. So he illustrates some powerful things for us about being a disciple. And, and, and as we see, we see in here a path to following Jesus, we see a pattern that we see repeated throughout the New Testament. And the first is this, is that we encounter Jesus. None of us is born knowing who he is. We need to be introduced to him. We need to come and see for ourselves. And so there has to be an encounter and in that, in that encounter, then we have a decision to make. We need to recognize who he truly is. We need to decide what we believe about him. Is he who he says he is? Do we believe what the Bible says about him? Do we believe that he died in our place and rose again? That he has the power to forgive sins and restore our relationship with God? And it's not enough to just decide that, to recognize who he is. Then there's action that's needed, and that's the next step. We respond by following him. Respond by following him. It's not enough to meet him and acknowledge who he is. We then have to put it into practice. When you believe something is true, you act as if it's true. So the call of Jesus is to follow him. It's to trust him and to align our lives with him. So as we consider the testimony of John the Baptist, may we be people who follow in his footsteps, who are humble, making much of Jesus, who are open standing boldly for truth, yet receptive to what God wants to teach us. And may we be obedient, putting our faith in action and following Jesus with our whole lives. Amen.